joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 97, The Short Life and Strange Death of Christopher Marlowe. Last time, I took Thomas Nash out of relative obscurity and shone the light on his wit and satire and involvement with the best of the playwrights of the Elizabethan age. Christopher Marlowe needs no such rescuing, as his reputation has survived the centuries. Dr Faustus, Tamburlaine and others are still performed occasionally, and we can find a lot in them to like. His reputation as a playwright has only been enhanced by the story of his life, which is shrouded in Elizabethan mystery, as you are, no doubt, getting used to hearing me say. You might notice that the style of this episode is slightly different from other recent episodes. That's because I originally wrote the story of Marlowe's life as a guest contribution to the History of England podcast. So I had to assume a lower level of theatrical knowledge than I would now for regular listeners to this podcast. I have re-recorded the episode to make some minor adjustments to the text, but it is essentially the episode that was put out on the History of England podcast. If you listen to that at the time, then all of this will sound somewhat familiar. That said, let's get on with the life of Christopher Marlowe, or Kit Marlowe, in the Elizabethan shortened form. Mostly, there are two things people know about Marlowe. That he was a playwright, but not as well known as Shakespeare, and that he was killed in a tavern brawl. If you know a little more, it's probably that there was a portrait of him. At least some of this is true. He was primarily a playwright, and in his time regarded by many as something of a genius, and way ahead of that fledgling Shakespeare. He was killed at a young age in mysterious circumstances, but it was not in a tavern or a street brawl, as some later stories retold. There is a portrait that is said to be of him, and there's a good chance that it is, but we can't be certain. That painting was discovered in 1953 in a pile of junk in the Master's Lodge of Corpus Christi College at Cambridge University. Marlowe was a student there from 1580 to 1587, and the painting carries an inscription that suggests the sitter is aged 21, and that the year was 1585, so the dates fit. Having your portrait painted as a student was a common practice. Many of them from the period still line the walls of the college to this day. But it was not an insignificant financial outlay, and Marlowe, the son of a shoemaker, was attending the college on his scholarship. So such expense seems a bit odd. In the picture, the young man is wearing a sumptuous velvet doublet that surely would have broken the college rules about modest dress, if not the sumptuary laws of the time. So, there is much to suggest that this isn't Marlowe's picture, and yet I can't resist the idea that it is. His arms are folded, suggesting concealment, and his eyes are focused slightly to the left, with a look of confidence, maybe even arrogance. That suggests this was a young man on the make, a man who thought he knew where he was going. It's not evidence for sure, but the Latin text in the painting doesn't help. It says... That which feeds me destroys me. Which is so prescient that you have to think that it was added later, however contemporary it looks. However, the fact that the painting was removed from public view and forgotten about works in the favour of the idea that it is Marlowe. Even before his death, his reputation outside of his plays was not good, and the official version of the events around his death and the popular story that was generated only helped it to sink lower. It's therefore quite plausible that the removal of the portrait was a cleansing act by the college master, 
erasing the memory of a fallen former student. The biggest surprise is, perhaps, that it wasn't destroyed completely. Marlowe's short life and violent death were perhaps not typical of an Elizabethan life, but it does tell us a lot about Elizabethan society and how, amongst the governing classes, politics, religion and deception all went hand in hand. And how does playwright and shoemaker's son Kit Marlowe fit into that? In answering that, we also get a glimpse of the underbelly of Elizabethan society and an idea of just how closely that life was involved with the grandest people of the day. In this case, I think the best place to start is at the end of the story. The setting is Deptford, a town on the Thames outside the city of London. The date is Wednesday the 30th of May, 1593. Deptford was a thriving little place with shipbuilding and oyster netting providing most of the employment in the area. Lodging houses also provided a lucrative trade for some, especially in 1593 when the plague was raging in the city. In May alone that year, there were 2,000 recorded plague deaths in the City of London, so the less crowded, fresher areas outside the walls were preferred by those who could afford it and arrange the move. The linear town of Deptford, sitting between the river and the open fields, offered sanctuary from the miasma in the city, where you could see people dying in the streets, hear of friends dead before you knew they were ill, and knew that in the houses in your street, your neighbours' bodies could be rotting away unattended, denied even a decent burial. The official report by the coroner, completed two days after Marlowe's death, is in the public record, and is brief and functional. The coroner in question was William Danby, coroner to the royal household. The stabbing would have been considered a fairly routine incident, but for its location. The Queen's Palace at Greenwich was only a mile away, placing the incident officially within the verge, a term that meant within 12 miles of the body of the Queen, and as such, Danby was obliged to handle the legal investigation. For the inquest, the jury of 16 local men were gathered at the site of the incident, and the victim's body was present. As recounted by the coroner, the events of the day of the incident were as follows. In the mid-morning, four men met in a house in Deptford. They held private conversation in a room until midday when they took some lunch. In the afternoon, they walked in the garden of the house and continued their conversation away from the earshot of others. Later, about six o'clock, they came back to the room and took some supper. After eating, Marlowe laid on the only bed in the room while the other three men sat at the table on a bench. Then an argument started about the, quote, sum of pence owed for the food and drink which Marlowe and one of the other men, Ingram Fraser, exchanging malicious words. Fraser was sitting between his two companions, Nicholas Skerris and Robert Poley, with his back to Marlowe. As Marlowe suddenly leapt from the bed, Fraser was unable to move, wedged as he was between his companions. Marlowe grabbed Fraser's dagger from his belt and hit him around the head with it. The coroner notes two slashing flesh wounds more than two inches long and half an inch deep, on Fraser's head. The implication is that these wounds were inflicted with the pummel of the dagger, not the blade, so intended to hurt, not kill. Fraser, according to the account, tried to defend himself, but was still hampered by the bulk of Skerris and Poli on either side of him. In the words of the inquest, And so, 
it befell in an affray, and the said Ingram, in defence of his life, with the dagger aforesaid to the value of twelve pence, gave said Christopher a mortal wound above the right eye, to the depth of two inches, and to the width of one inch. The coroner's final note is that Marlowe died instantly. A dagger through the eye and into the brain tends to have that effect. Fraser, Skerris and Polly didn't flee the scene and were present at the inquest. A murderer could be sure of the death penalty in Elizabethan England unless self-defence could be proved. The fact that all three stayed to be arrested suggests that they were confident that they could prove self-defence. With two witnesses, this was probably a safe enough bet. Any investigation of the circumstances of a crime was not primarily evidence-based at the time, but would have given weight to the evidence of those present as the events unfolded. The jury came to the almost inevitable conclusion that Fraser had killed Marlowe in self-defence. Marlowe's body was buried in an unmarked grave in the local churchyard later the same day. Hopefully, some of his London-based friends had heard the news and were present at his internment. Fraser was held in prison until the formal wheels turned and the conclusion of the inquest was confirmed. At the end of June, a formal pardon was issued by the Queen on the basis of self-defence, and Fraser was a free man. And to the Elizabethan eye, that was that. An event not so strange in the boisterous and sometimes brutal world of the young man about town. And if there was such a thing as an investigative journalist in Elizabethan London, they would have uncovered a previous knife-fight incident involving Marlowe that took place not so long ago. He might have been called a hothead. Some might even hint at rumoured unnatural practices. Some at his Catholic sympathies. But they would have been repeating hearsay and innuendo. His recent success as a playwright didn't put him in high regard either. Records pertaining to him refer to him as a scholar, not as a playwright. Marlowe's first play, Dido, Queen of Carthage, based on his first great literary love, Ovid, was written sometime between 1584 and 1587, with his much more successful efforts coming hard on its heels. The dates are a little uncertain, but there was Tamburlaine at about 1587, and, due to its popularity, a hastily written sequel in 1588. Then The Jew of Malta in 1589, Dr Faustus in 1591, Edward II in 1592 and The Massacre of Paris in 1593. The first play, Dido, Queen of Carthage, was probably co-written with Thomas Nash, but his contribution is thought to have been quite slight. It was first performed by The Children of the Chapel, a troupe of boy actors of the type that I've mentioned in previous episodes. All the subsequent plays are recorded with performances at the main London theatres in the years before his death and after. However, as you know, playwriting was not considered a profession, and theatre generally battled a reputation that was confined to the lower rungs of Elizabethan society, in stark contrast to the high-flown ambitions of the best of its playwrights. Marlowe was certainly one of these, credited as he is with being the turning point of Elizabethan drama when he used the blank verse that had been introduced in Gorbiduck to much greater effect, and by introducing more intricate plots and nuanced characters with some real psychological depth. But this playwright is a slippery character for us to get hold of. How can a scholarly, thoughtful young genius be reconciled with the manner of his death and the other accusations levelled against him? My imagined journalist would only have to scratch the surface to get a feeling that something was going on here, 
And if we just keep digging, we might find the sort of story that sells a few newspapers. Even in the bland coroner's account, there is an air of mystery. The behaviour of Marlowe and his companions is furtive. The question of what the group of men were doing on the day is not addressed, or at least not recorded, not even asked as far as we can see at the inquest. Doesn't it seem strange that Fraser was arguing with Marlowe while he was seated with his companions, and Marlowe was lying on a bed? It seems that such questions were an irrelevance to the matter as far as the coroner was concerned. So, who were Marlowe's companions? Forensic work in the National Archives by biographers and scholars in the subsequent years have given us some of the answers, even if sometimes they have to be teased out of some quite obscure records. If we're looking for some indications of the character of the witnesses, then an incident involving Skerris and Fraser at exactly the same time is interesting. The two were involved in a money-lending scheme that boarded on the fraudulent. In 1572, the Statute of Usury fixed the interest rates on loans as a maximum of 10%. So to get around this, a lender would not lend money, but some goods that the recipient could then sell on. These schemes were common and not strictly illegal, but they did rely on the desperation or gullibility of those in need of some money. In this case, Skerris was approached by a friend for a loan, but claiming not to have any spare cash, he introduced him to Fraser. He also said that he had no ready money to spare, but that he had a number of guns that he stored at Tower Hill, and that were ready for sale. He valued them at £60. The young friend of Skerris signed a bond for £60 and shook hands on the deal. Conveniently, Fraser also offered to find a buyer for the guns, which he did, but then he said that they had only realised £30. So now Fraser had loaned £30, but had a signed bond for 60 a nice 100% interest rate, and he quite probably still had the guns as well. Skerris then persuaded the friend to help him out of a smaller debt to Fraser of £4, and he signed a bond for this. In an attempt to get himself out of this increasing debt, the young man then borrowed £200 from a gent of good worship. The new debt was of a type that allowed for any default to be chased and paid for by seizure of the debtor's goods. So now we can see Skerris and Fraser in a less than favourable light, and it's clear that they were in a sort of business relationship as well as known to each other. No surprise then that they backed each other up when describing events around the death of Marlowe. In addition, that gent of good worship, who was no doubt recommended to the unfortunate friend by Skerris or Fraser, was Thomas Walsingham, cousin to the Queen's spymaster Sir Francis Walsingham. Fraser was in the employ of Thomas at the time, and Thomas was also a patron of Marlowe, who had been at his house in the weeks before his death. All of a sudden, we can see connections that were not addressed in the inquest. The role of Skerris in the case seems subservient to Fraser, but he had history too. There is a possible mention of him as a fencer of stolen goods, and with more certainty, as a law student, he was caught up in a similar loan scan and only just avoided jail time for it. That incident puts him in the company of Matthew Royden, a law student and a poet, and Royden was a close associate of Marlowe. So it seems that Skerris, budding crook, also moved on the fringes of London's University Wits set. We know Marlowe was at the house of Thomas Walsingham in May 1593, 
because on the 18th the Privy Council issued a warrant for him to appear before them, and they sent a Queen's messenger to collect him from the Walsingham House in Kent. Two days later, the council records show that he did indeed appear as requested, was given bail, and instructed to be available for daily attendance if requested. The council's interest in Marlowe had been bubbling away for some time. It was not his fame as a dramatist that interested them, but his reputation as an outspoken atheist. Comments on his views had already appeared in print and were about to be enlarged on by the government informers and others, most notably his former roommate and fellow dramatist Thomas Kidd. The late 1580s and the early 1590s were a fractious and worrying time in London. Not only were there regular visitations of the plague that exacerbated unemployment and inflation at home, but abroad the war in the Low Countries was dragging on and the threat from Spain was ever-present. In oft-repeated fashion, the blame for the hard times was lobbed at London's immigrant community, which had recently grown thanks to the unrest on the continent. They still only made up about 2% of the city population, but they were concentrated in particular areas, and perceived by struggling merchants and shopkeepers as the cause of their problems. On the other hand, the government saw them as genuine refugees, bolstering the Protestant ranks in the London population, and then Parliament voted to extend their resident alien privileges. There was only one dissenting voice in that parliamentary debate, the voice of Sir Walter Raleigh, and that's not the last time that he comes into this story. The populace of London were not pleased, and at Easter 1593, a placard calling for apprentices to rise up against the immigrants was nailed up. Others followed and the threat of violent unrest was taken so seriously that a commission, including two of Sir Francis Walsingham's agents, was set up to determine the authorship of the incendiary placards. On the 5th of May, another placard appeared, this time in Broad Street, on the wall of the Dutch churchyard. The content was a comic but vitriolic poem with a catchy last couple of lines, the kind of thing that could be turned into a chant at a demonstration. It was signed Tamburlaine. That, and the lines of the poem that referred to Machiavellian merchants and Like the Jews Who Eat All the Bread, brought Marlowe's well-known play and the recent Jew of Malta into the minds of the commission. A reference to the Paris massacre, where French Protestants had been slaughtered less than a year earlier and which Marlowe had brought to the stage in lurid fashion, sealed the Privy Council's interest. It seemed to point to Marlowe being the author, but he was not their only concern. A wide-ranging edict was issued, authorising for any suspects to be rounded up, have papers seized and be questioned. If necessary, such questioning could include the use of torture. It's not clear why Thomas Kidd was targeted and picked up. He was known for his play The Spanish Tragedy, and the connection to Marlowe may just have been enough of an excuse. No other details suggest that he had controversial views, but he was charged as the author of the Dutch churchyard poem. In later letters, he told of how he was tortured and subjected to, quote, many sufferings. Later, he believed that he was the victim of an informer. Under torture, he protested that he was true to the Queen and would tell all that he knew about the unrest, if he knew anything, but he didn't. While under interrogation, Kidd's papers were reviewed and amongst them was found a three-page handwritten document that Kidd described as fragments of a disputation authored by Marlowe. The council saw them as writings that denied the divinity of Christ and Marlowe's name had come up again. 
At the time, the council saw such views as atheistic, a serious charge. Whereas later scholars now think that they were actually quotations from an earlier work that was arguing against the Unitarian heresy that denied the Trinity. In the course of that repudiation, large parts of the original heresy are quoted. Kidd protested that they were Marlowe's papers that had become mixed with his, and he was believed. Perhaps someone on the council remembered that Marlowe had been accused of atheistic views a few years before, in a pamphlet penned by Robert Green, in one of those pamphlets that he wrote while he was dying. In any event, the council dug into Marlowe further, and called on professional informer Richard Chomley for evidence. He's quoted as saying that Marlowe is able to show more sound reasons for atheism than any divine in England is able to give to prove divinity. And that Marlowe had read such atheistic tracts to Sir Walter Raleigh in his company of others. Kidd then added to this picture, perhaps picking up on what his interrogators wanted to hear, saying Marlowe was always happy to argue about God's divinity and the human failings of Christ. That was enough for the council to call Marlowe's presence before them. As Marlowe waited in London, another government informer, Richard Baines, wrote a report on Marlowe for the council, which painted a picture of Marlowe as a man only too willing to broadcast his heretical thoughts, concluding that so dangerous a mouth should be stopped. So why were these government informers interested in painting Marlowe in such a bad light? To get to that question, we have to understand something about the period in general and Marlowe's lifestyle, short as it was, is a useful focus in that respect. He was born in February 1564, just two months before Shakespeare. They were actually baptised on the same day. Elizabeth was only five and a half years into her reign, but had moved quickly to reverse the religious policies of her half-sister Mary during her short reign. Elizabeth espoused a degree of toleration, while establishing the premier position of the Church of England with the Act of Uniformity in the first full year of her reign. Tolerance meant that she realised that there were powerful noble families, especially in the Midlands and the north of England, who still held deep-seated feelings for the Catholic cause. She tried to balance this with the Protestantism that she encouraged, which was of a Calvinistic bent. Attending church on a Sunday was obligatory, and failure to do so could result in fines and social stigma. Catholic priests were still hunted and tried for execution if caught, their promotion of the Catholic religion being an act of treason under the Elizabethan regime, where politics and religion were always closely entwined. For many, the conversion to Protestantism was a show, and private Catholic masses were held in secret. The problem for the Catholic was that the persecution and therefore shortage of priests meant that they could not participate their faith fully, and when they could, it was at a huge personal risk to all concerned. And just to think for a moment on what that meant for the ordinary people. Under Elizabeth's father, Henry VIII, they had gone willingly or been persuaded, cajoled and forced into the new Protestant religion focused mainly on the break from Rome. That had been maintained in the short reign of his son Edward and the even shorter reign of his chosen successor, Lady Jane Grey, but suppressed with vigour by Mary when the population was commanded to return to the Catholic fold. Elizabeth's reversal of all that Mary stood for was expected, but at the time, who could be sure it would last? No one knew that Elizabeth would reign for nearly 50 years, and given events since the death of Henry, all bets were off on any such longevity. Who could say that in a few years' time, all of this wouldn't be reversed again, 
perhaps when the country was under the rule of France or Spain. For the vast majority of the population, compliance in body, if not in mind, was the order of the day, with the increasingly theological arguments about the nature of English Protestantism being of little concern to most of them. For the majority, the overriding concern of life continued to be where the next meal was coming from, or how good the harvest would be this year, not what flavour of God you worshipped. These were turbulent years, when what you thought and believed could cost you your liberty and even your life. In the uncertain time of the transfer of power to a new monarch, and particularly at the time when a woman was a head of state, it's perhaps no surprise that it was a time of deep suspicion. Oh, and there was always the threat of plague almost every summer. Plague that could take your loved ones off with no notice, and decimate families, streets, even towns and villages in a few short weeks. That, of course, was interpreted as retribution from God for some lack of piety, and the population was exhorted to double down on their religious observances to keep the pestilence from their doors. It was into this milieu that Christopher's father, John, had come to Canterbury from Kent, searching to be engaged as an apprentice to a shoemaker. He arrived at a town in a state of trauma. As the seat of the religious head of the Church of England, Canterbury had taken the brunt of religious reforms and counter-reforms. Henry had trashed the shrine of Thomas a Becket, one of the most popular in the country, and closed the abbeys. Mary had burnt Protestants in the city with enthusiasm, and disease was ever-present. Plague and influenza had reduced the city population so much in recent years that rules on the movement of apprentices was relaxed. Marlowe Senior may well have chosen Canterbury just as a religious centre, or maybe because there were distant relations in the area. Marlowe and its variants were a common name in these parts, and relations, however distant, could provide a local support network for those living in a state close to poverty. Having established himself as apprentice to a shoemaker, he found his acceptance to the guild accelerated when his master died of the plague four years later. He had married, and his wife Catherine bore children every couple of years for the next decade and a half. The expanding family somehow scraped by. There were local court records showing that John was involved in chasing debts and being chased for debt, but they kept their heads above water one way and another, with the grind of daily work and child-rearing broken only by the grief of children who died at alarmingly frequent intervals. By the age of four, all of Christopher's older siblings had died, and he was the only boy in the family. Marlowe Senior only ever employed one apprentice, and he didn't last long, suggesting either that his business was not thriving or that he was a difficult boss. Maybe both. He started to take on legal clerical work to supplement his income, acting as a scribe and witness to local matters. There was a growing trade in the lower-level legal practice as the expanding subclass of literate craftsmen turned to the law for satisfaction more and more and John now had good reason and enough ambition to make sure that his only surviving son had a good education. Christopher would have started that process in the local school, aged six, and learnt the basics of reading and writing. Schools like his were housed in whatever suitable building was available, most likely taught by the local parish priest. Learning was by rote, and based on the syllabus established by Henry VIII and confirmed by Elizabeth. The ABC focused on alphabets, vowels and basic reading, with other learning coming from the Catechism and a book of private prayer. 
Following completion of the elementary school, Marlowe went to the local grammar school, where some of his fees, at least, were paid in kind by his father. The headmaster seems to have had several arrangements with fathers of his pupils to take part payment in the goods of their trade. There, the young Christopher studied Latin and more grammar and catechism. But now, this was based on the approved works of more recent authorship that avoided the Catholicism inherent in the elementary school primers, which were written before the Reformation. Marlowe was in the first generation that used these new works focused on Roman usage, so rather than the works of St Thomas Aquinas, they introduced the young scholar to Cicero and Ovid and the comic plays of Terence, which were preferred for their straightforward style of Latin. The students were expected to rote-learn passages from classical literature, Latin verb forms and grammatical constructions, but not to think too deeply about their content. The routine was both intense and probably mind-numbingly boring to our way of thinking. It was designed to instil obedience, deference to those in authority, and respect for elders and betters. But as a life like Marlowe's was to show, this education, for some at least, resulted in the desired outward show of obedience, but it did not curtail free thought entirely. By the fifth form, the students were learning the principles of Roman oratory and poetry, taking their models again from Ovid and Cicero and Virgil, with poetry being part of the teaching of grammar and oratory teaching the basics of constructing and responding to an argument. Marlowe's school in Canterbury had a tradition of sending the best pupils to Oxford and Cambridge, where these basic skills of learning were considered essential. In 1580, Marlowe went to Cambridge on a Parker Scholarship. This had been established by Archbishop Parker some years earlier and supported three years of the four-year BA course. He left Canterbury in December, making the 70-mile journey in about three days by hitching rides on farm and merchants' vehicles from town to town. His lodgings were in the college quadrangle, along with the master's lodge, the hall, the kitchens and the buttery. And it's the buttery records of eating expenses that give us the pattern of Marlowe's behaviours at college. He had arrived at university early, probably to try to get ahead with learning, and had not yet received his allowance for attendance under the scholarship. His first meal cost him a frugal one penny. But later in the month, he was spending three shillings a week on food and drink. It's not clear how he funded this, but one suggestion is that he was one of the many students who assisted workmen building the new college chapel. The college regime was rigorous. Early prayers, six days a week, were followed by lectures on logic and philosophy. In the afternoon, Greek grammar and translations were followed by rhetoric and training on the construction and defence of a thesis. Lectures and lessons went on well into the evenings. As his degree studies progressed, the focus became more on disputation and argument, culminating in an exam period where four disputations had to be performed in front of examiners. Marlowe achieved his BA in the middle ranks of his year, which may have had more to do with his social class than his actual skills, but it did open the option of continuing his study for an MA degree under the scholarship programme. But there was a glitch. Initially, the award of Marlowe's degree was withheld by the college authorities. During his BA, Marlowe's attendance records show some gaps. This wasn't unusual in itself. Scholars often took time out from studies for financial and other reasons and were allowed to return as long as they had proof from a suitable person 
that they had continued to study during their absence from college. Marlowe was away for several weeks in the summer of 1585 and the spring of 1586, and these absences appear to have resulted in his name being mentioned to the Privy Council. The master at Cambridge had learned of a rumour that Marlowe was determined to go beyond the seas to Reims. This referenced to the English College at Reims that was the centre of Catholic opposition to the English throne. It was the favoured destination of young Catholics as a place to complete their studies, receive ordination and potentially to return to England as missionaries. It was also the place that gave birth to plots of more direct action on the state and the Queen herself. To be labelled as going to Reims was a serious charge. It seems that it was this rumour that held up the awarding of Marlowe's degree. It's not clear how the involvement of the council was requested, but presumably it came from Marlowe himself or his handler. The issue was resolved when the Privy Council informed the Master that Marlowe, quote, had done Her Majesty good service in matters touching the benefit of the country, and that he had never intended to remain on the continent. That overt message, the increased spending on his return to college and the company he kept post-graduation, all suggest that the theory that he was involved in some clandestine work for the government that paid well is a sound one. Monitoring the college at Reims and other expatriate Catholics was considered essential work for the government of the time. There was, after all, real threats from Spain and France, and papal bulls that gave permission for regicide if it led to the restoration of the Catholic faith in England. Elizabeth had established the first English secret service under Sir Francis Walsingham, and records show its budget increased year on year as agents and handlers were sent to the continent and into the great houses of Catholic families at home. In addition, the great men of state, Lords Essex, Burley and Raleigh and others, ran their own networks of informers and spies to various degrees. Mary, the Queen's cousin, was a serious rival to the throne. She had been held under house arrest since fleeing to England from Scotland, but was still the centre of plots against Elizabeth intentionally or otherwise, and Walsingham was determined to see her removed. A young, educated man, who could be plausibly presented on the continent as a sympathetic Catholic, could be very useful as a plant to entice information out of those engaged in plotting against the Queen. What results from the official records is a very confused picture, where operatives worked on the edge of the law, sometimes without explicit authority for the actions they took. So who was genuine Catholic plotting against the state, and who was a spy working to undermine these plans, became very confusing to our view at least, and probably at the time too. And it is at the college at Reims that we find Richard Baines, the informer who would later corroborate the view that Marlowe was an outspoken atheist. Baines had entered the college in 1579, after completing an MA at Cambridge. His time at Reims coincided with the period when the Privy Council had asked for the entire college to be expelled. The King of France had refused, and it's likely that a more covert strategy was devised as a result. Baines was eventually uncovered as a spy, and under torture, he declared that he had only turned against the college during his studies there. But letters in the records suggest that he was in touch with Walsingham from early on, so it seems likely that he had been sent to infiltrate the college. 
the confession Baines made is on the record, and the various doctrines that he rails against, confirming what his captors wanted to hear about his non-conforming sentiments, bear a striking similarity to the views he ascribes to Marlowe a few years later. Once the college at Reims had a confession, Baines was of little further use to them. The text in Latin was printed and copies smuggled into England to bolster the Catholic cause against the monarchy. Baines was eventually freed to turn up again later as Marlowe's accuser. Eventually, Walsingham's infiltration of the Catholic network on the continent paid off. His spies got wind of a plan to assassinate the Queen. A missionary cleric, John Ballard, living disguised in London as a retired soldier, visited Yorkshire to get acquainted with Anthony Babington, scion of a committed Northern Catholic family, and gathered support for him and other like-minded locals. Unfortunately for all concerned, one of those locals, Bernard Maud, was working for Walsingham. So when Ballard needed a passport to return to France, Maud was able to supply it, with Walsingham happy to let the conspiracy grow and capture as many papist traitors as possible when the time came. It seems clear that Walsingham's intent was to let the plot run until Mary was implicated, so that the threat of her presence could be permanently removed. Ballard returned from the continent with an exaggerated report of the support for the plan to free Mary and raise the English Catholics in rebellion. Babington was persuaded to lead the plot, but keen as he was in his faith, he was more reluctant to become a regicide. He stalled, and then decided he needed to go abroad himself to confirm the support that was being offered. To do this, he needed a passport authorised by the Queen, and to get that, he needed the support of someone in court. He turned to Robert Poley, who was officially employed at the time by Walsingham's daughter. Poley encouraged him, and in a rush of enthusiasm, Babington foolishly wrote to Mary with details of the plot. The letter was intercepted, and Walsingham's trap was sprung. The Babington plot, as it's now become known, led directly to the trial and execution of Mary. This is the world of espionage, plot and counterplot, an exaggerated and manufactured fear and uncertainty that is thought Marlowe became involved with. A university man with some Catholic background was an obvious choice for some undercover work. They had some level of skill with language and were trained to be quick-thinking in an argument. An approach to a poor student with an offer of a decent payment for some time out from study and travel was, we can imagine, very enticing. In April 1590, Francis Walsingham died, leaving a power vacuum within government and in the intelligence service in particular. Candidates to take Walsingham's position and establish or reinforce a closeness with the Queen jockeyed for position. Lord Burley, the elder statesman, was a strong candidate, with the work being done by his younger son, Robert Cecil. The Earl of Essex, representing the younger faction and already in control of a large intelligence network, also fancied the position, as did Sir Thomas Hennage, Vice-Chamberlain and Walsingham's former number two. The names Poley, Skerris and others turn up as they try to establish allegiances and work for new potential employers. About the same time, the focus of the intelligence work was moving from France to the Low Countries, feeding off the ongoing military campaign there. A letter discovered as late as 1976 shows that Marlowe was in Vissingen, then the English possession of Flushing, in 1592. The details are never as clear as we would like them, but it's possible that Marlowe was there and roomed with Richard Baines, the spy from the episode at the College of Reims. 
As Baines told it to the authorities, Marlowe had persuaded a goldsmith, one Robert Gilbert, to counterfeit coins and was planning to defect to the Catholic side. Under arrest, Marlowe protested that he was only testing the goldsmith's skills and accused Baines of being equally involved. The three were transported back to England, but only Marlowe and Gilbert were prisoners. Marlowe was interviewed by Lord Burley. Counterfeiting was a treasonable offence, and Burley treated the matter seriously. The death penalty could be expected. We don't have the details of their conversation, but Marlowe was freed without censure. What that implies is that either he was in the Low Countries on government work for Burley or A.N. Other, or Burley saw him as a useful man to have in his debt. Unfortunately, we will probably never untangle the plays and counterplays in this shady world. There is one other significant relationship that feeds into the Marlowe story. Sir Walter Raleigh was certainly known to Marlowe as a fellow poet at least. Marlowe directly replies to a Raleigh poem in one of his own, and they shared many friends in the literary set. Those who later accuse Marlowe over his apparent atheism place him in Raleigh's company, as part of his circle, and reading atheistic tracts to him in the company of others. As this was expected to be believed, we have to assume that there was at least some known association. Raleigh was known for his unconventional views on religious freedoms and had been accused of atheism by others. He was also known to be interested in the occult and had entertained magicians and mystics at his home. By this time, he was no longer the Queen's favourite, having married one of her ladies-in-waiting without permission and they had both spent a spell in the Tower of London for their trouble. After their release, he returned to public life, not at court, but as a member of Parliament in 1593. So he was still a political operator at a high level, but his star had waned, and he was disliked by the likes of Essex and Burley. When Parliament debated the extension on the rights of immigrants, it was only Raleigh who stood up in dissent as the body of Parliament approved the motion. Placards calling for insurrection were then posted in the city, and as the authorities investigated, Kidd's papers implicated Marlowe and brought the question of atheism to the fore. Baines, Kidd, Chomley and others then build on that concern and mention the connection to Raleigh, possibly as the prompting of their interrogators working for the council, but possibly also for Essex or Burley, both of them in the anti-Raleigh camp. After Marlowe's death, Chomley was arrested and there are letters from Essex to various of his supporters thanking them for interceding on Chomley's release. It seemed unequivocal that Chomley was an Essex man. There's little or no firm evidence, but it has been suggested that what we can see there is the building of a case against Raleigh based on suspicion and innuendo, and in the circle of the Elizabethan court that was all that was needed sometimes to bring a rival down. By playing up Raleigh's atheism and linking that with an interest in the occult at the very least, he might be forced further out of the Queen's orbit and away from meaningful power, and at best he may end up out of the picture permanently, sans head. Marlowe may have been a pawn in this great game of the Elizabethan lords, councillors and spymasters. So, can we draw firm conclusions about the circumstances of Marlowe's death from this patchwork of information, half-truths and outright lies? In all honesty, probably not. At least, nothing absolutely conclusive. Firstly, it is quite possible that he was killed in a fight 
over the bill for the food and the drink. Perhaps there had been more drinking during the day than was admitted at the inquest, and tempers got heated because of some perceived unfairness in the division of the costs, or some other personal matter between these men. It's possible, but that explanation leaves a lot of unanswered questions. The alternative possibility is that these men were known to each other through the Elizabethan spy networks. It is suggested as probable that they met on that day to persuade Marlowe to assist in their plans, which were probably plans to discredit Walter Raleigh and force him out of power. If the plan had been for Marlowe to take the blame for the Dutch church placards and to take Raleigh down with him, then something had gone wrong, or looked like it was about to go wrong. It's likely that the men he was with were Essex men. So was it that Essex was concerned that he was about to become implicated in a plot, or that his men thought that this was likely? There is even one suggestion that it was Chomley working for Essex who wrote the Dutch churchyard poem that drew Marlowe firmly into the conspiracy. If, after a long day of discussions, Marlowe remained unpersuaded to help, perhaps because of commitments he'd made to Burley, and this was going to go badly for Essex, it's possible that the men had instructions from Essex to tie up this loose end permanently, or maybe that was their decision as the day progressed. Perhaps there is a combination of truths here, where frustration with Marlowe boiled over, and in the heat of the moment, the dagger worth 12 pence was drawn and thrust into Marlowe's eye. Men like Poley and Fraser were undoubtedly experienced and ruthless, and quite capable of such an act, and Essex would certainly be looking for plausible deniability if his involvement in such a sordid business ever became known. There may be other explanations too. As we weren't in the room at the time, we'll never know for sure. And this tale, interesting as it is, is not the reason we should remember Marlowe. We will remember him as a poet and a playwright, and the manner and the reasons for his death are merely footnotes. What is important is the plays. Tamburlaine, Dr Faustus, The Jew of Malta and The Massacre at Paris stand up in their own right some 400 years later. In the summer of 1599, six years after Marlowe's death, the Bishop of London publicly burnt copies of Marlowe's translations of Ovid's Elegies. Shakespeare was writing As You Like It at the time, and it seems that these events reminded him of his predecessor and their connection through Ovid. Shakespeare included a couplet in his play. Dead Shepherd, now I find thy sore of night, whoever loved that loved not at first sight. This quotes a well-known Marlowe poem, making Marlowe the dead shepherd, whose saying, whoever loved, that loved not at first sight, is now understood. Later in the play, Touchstone the Fool says, When a man's verses cannot be understood, nor a man's good wit seconded with that forward child, understanding, it strikes a man more dead than a great reckoning in a little room. The reckoning in a little room not only echoes a line in the Jew of Malta, but directly references the wording of the coroner's report on Marlowe's death. As ever with Shakespeare, there are layers of understanding, and the reference will have passed over the heads of many in the audience without recognition. But for those with some little knowledge of Marlowe and the circumstances of his death, it would have resonated. He had not been forgotten by Shakespeare or his literary contemporaries, and the greatest playwright of the age acknowledged his debt to Marlowe the playwright, the poet, the spy, in perhaps the most fitting way, hidden in a play. 
Next time, we will begin our look at Marlowe's plays and see how they fit with their time or bounce against it. Marlowe's output wasn't great, just those six plays make up his canon, although given the life story I've just recounted, it's perhaps surprising that he managed to produce even those six. My only advice is to come with a strong stomach. His plays do not hold back. In the meantime, please join the Facebook page or group or find us on Instagram or Twitter to keep up to date with the podcast and other theatre-related stuff. If you'd like to help support the podcast, the easiest thing to do would be to pass on the word to anyone you think might be interested in a bit of theatre history, or if you have a moment, write a review and rate the podcast in your podcast app of choice. And whatever feedback you have, I'm always happy to hear it. You can find details of other ways to support the podcast on the website at www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. There is also additional content on Patreon that you can access for a small monthly fee. And if you don't already listen to the History of England podcast, perhaps you should. David Crowther presents it with a unique style that carries the story of English history along at a good pace. I certainly recommend it. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) 